Christ for you anytime, anywhere since 1924. Text the letters KFUO to 41444 to join the legacy with your tax-deductible gift. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning to everyone here in our KFUO listening audience. We are happy to have you here for St. Paul's Bible class as we continue looking at our Scripture lessons for the coming week. And it's a big day here at St. Paul's because this afternoon we'll be having our festival music at the time of Christmas, our music at St. Paul's offering, and all the community is invited. It's a service of readings and special music with all of our choirs, and all are invited to attend at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Also this morning, you'll notice there are more chairs set up because the Sunday School is helping us with the service in the gym at 1045. So there are more chairs this morning. All right, so we want to begin the lessons for the third Sunday in Advent. And that begins with Isaiah 61, 1 to 4 and 8 to 11. Now, Isaiah 61 is a very well-known chapter, and that is because it's cited by Jesus himself in the New Testament. But what's intriguing is this. Notice how it starts, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, me. Now, when we first read that, we would think that it's referring to the prophet, Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. However, the prophet never speaks of himself this way in Isaiah. Nor can the prophet do what is described here. And so we look elsewhere. And what we come to realize when Jesus reads this passage in the New Testament, that already in 750 B.C., the one who is speaking here, is the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, let's look. I'm going to read you what Luke 4 says. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That was a pretty striking moment, folks. They all knew this passage from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And the me isn't the prophet Isaiah. It's the Messiah. 
So when he sits down and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he's saying, here I am. I'm the fulfillment of the promise. I'm the fulfillment of the prophecy. I'm going to do these things today. They'd been waiting on the fulfillment of the prophecy for 750 years. And Jesus basically says, I'm me. I'm the one. So this passage is well known, and it is very striking. Because the Lord has anointed me. When was Jesus anointing? Not when he was 12, when he was baptized. That was his anointing. Usually they anointed with oil, but what happened with Jesus was he was baptized and he was anointed with the Holy Spirit without measure. That was his anointed, anointing. To bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In other words, this is the description of what Jesus was going to do. He was going to heal broken hearts. He was going to set at liberty the captives. And all that's being described here is what his ministry would do. And it's summarized when it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is behind that explains the rest of it. And what is behind that is this. In the Old Testament, it was prescribed that the 50th year was a jubilee year. A jubilee year. They counted time by sevens, okay? The 49th year then was the, the, the seven, okay? And then the 50th year would be a special year, the jubilee year. Now, God prescribed what was supposed to happen in the 50th year. When the children of Israel had settled the land in the 50th year, the Jubilee year, any Jew that had become a slave because of debt would be set free. Any land or property that had become payment for debt to another, houses, any of it, would go back to its rightful owner. In other words, at the end of 50 years, you'd go back to where that property was the first 50 years ago. That's so... When you were a Jew, you inherited land when they inherited the promised land. If you had to give it up because of debt, God had ordained that after 50 years, you get it back. It all goes back to its owner. And if you are a slave, you are set free. That's why it says he's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. The year of Jubilee was foreshadowing what Christ would do 
when he came, which was set us free from captivity to sin and death. To sin and death. So what they were to do in Israel was a foreshadowing of what Christ would do for us. Not only is it a foreshadowing of what he would do, the Jubilee year, this fabulous year where everything goes back to its original and there's freedom from all slavery, is a picture of the last day that will last forever. So this is what Jesus is talking about with the year of the Lord's favor. It is a special year that God decreed. Now, here's the problem. We don't know of any time they ever abated. When the 50th year came, they didn't give the property back. There is no biblical record of the children of Israel ever keeping the Jubilee year. And it's because it was so radical. If you had obtained all this property, you didn't want to just give it back. If you had slaves indebted to you, you didn't want to give it back, turn them loose. So this marvelous year that God had ordained, ever 50 years, we don't think it was ever observed. So when Jesus comes, he's talking about something that is very radical, and it is the year of the Lord's favor. So the favor is based on the grace of God, the grace of God. All of these statements, good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, liberty for the captives, opening of the prison to those who are bound, those are all gospel statements, the grace of God. He's going to bind up the wounds that sin has caused. He's going to free you from death, the prison of death and hell. All of those are gospel promises that this Messiah, the me, is going, they are going to do. So that's why these verses Jesus refers to because that's the work that he came in the world to do. That's what he's about. The chapter goes on and provides more comforting words. Notice that the verse 2 says, and the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance. It's, it's, there should be a distinction here. How long is vengeance and judgment going to last? A day. How long is God's favor going to last? Forever. So he's coming again. There will be a day of judgment, but then the grace lasts forever. Okay? The difference between a day and a year. We need to pay attention to that. To comfort all who mourn. Okay? To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Ashes are the symbol for repentance. Okay? But that's all going to come to an end. When we're in heaven, repentance is gone. So we're going to have the blessings of grace. And then it goes on to just describe as best we can understand 
the marvelous work God's going to do. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. Instead of being anointed with mourning, you're going to be anointed with gladness. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now, these things like the garment, all that, those are references to baptism because it says in Galatians, if you have been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Okay? So the garment of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. You are planted by God. It is not your work. Build up ancient ruins, uh, raise up the former devastation, would repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge him, that they are an offering the Lord has blessed. People don't, in this world, don't pay attention to who the people of God are. On the last day, they're going to know. They're going to know that the people of God are a special people. The nations are going to know who the people of God are. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. That's baptism. You are not righteous. You do not have salvation. Now you have been clothed through baptism with Jesus Christ. So now you have his righteousness. Now you have the salvation he has provided. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, he is the bridegroom. He is the high priest. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, that's the church. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Okay? So this is a glorious passage that talks about what the Messiah is going to do and how God is going to work in human history and bring all this about through the Messiah and at the end of time. And it's all emphasized over and over that it is the work of God. The children of Israel are doing nothing here. This is being done to them and for them, not by them. So, as I say, it's a glorious passage to hold before us what God is going to do. And in Advent, that's why we read a lot from Isaiah. Uh, we did again this morning. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Okay. And we read that this morning. Pastor Thompson preached on it. But it's this figure of what God is going to do when he comes. And he comes in Christ, and he comes to fulfill the promises that were made long ago. Any questions on that passage? None? All right, then we'll move on. Our second lesson is from uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. And upon first reading, it just seems like a list of instructions. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So, just a list, a to-do list, all right? But let's talk about it. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. I want to talk about those two together. Christianity is a religion which turns men and women's thoughts away from themselves and to God and to Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has won for us. That is cause for rejoicing. That is cause for rejoicing. And it is critical. Okay? This joy that we have then extends wider than happiness. Happiness depends on your present circumstance. And something maybe you have or have obtained. But happiness is short term. Remember the old saying, don't worry, be happy? Okay. Doesn't work that way. We can obtain happiness by obtaining things, and usually happiness is obtained when you get what you want in life. When you get what you want. But it's short-lived. How many of the presents that your children get for Christmas will be played with again after one week. My daughter, my oldest daughter, three grandkids, yesterday they cleaned the rooms so they would have enough room for the new stuff to put away when they're not playing with it anymore. Happiness is short-lived. Happiness is short-lived. Christian joy, on the other hand, can extend to any circumstance in life. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy, but God wants to give you joy every moment, even if there is trial and tribulation. Because in the time of trial and tribulation, you also know that God is working. That you're not going through this by yourself. That God is working in your life and will work in your life through that trial and tribulation. That God is preparing you for heaven and that God is teaching you through trial and tribulation. I've said it before, nobody gets stronger in their faith when everything's going their way. It's when there are tribulations that you get stronger in faith. So even in the midst of all joy, I mean, in the midst of all tribulations, you can have joy. Count it all joy when tribulations overtake you. Count, count it all joy. So joy is to 
permeate our lives, even in difficult times. And that goes together with pray without ceasing. Okay? When we are in a time of tribulation, we are helpless because we're not in control. And therefore, the only place we can flee is to God. Prayer life, when it says pray without ceasing, it's not saying you have to be uttering prayers all the time. It's saying always have a prayerful spirit and be ready to pray on an instant's notice. And it doesn't have to be words in a petition of prayer. It can just be a thought from your heart. That is prayer too. But always be ready to pray. A person who is rejoicing in what God has done, that he or she is in Christ, is also ready to pray at any moment. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's tough to do. I remember one time we, we had this car. Uh, it was demonic. It would break down. It would break down. It had cost us a fortune, but we couldn't afford anything else. So finally, we had spent more money on the car, and it was running very well. And I was driving home, and I said, God, thank you for this car. And it stopped running again in that moment. It's tough to give thanks in every circumstance. But God is working. And it says, it gives you the reason why. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. To look at whatever circumstance you face in life and give thanks to God for it. Okay? Give thanks to God for it. Philippians 4 uh, says much the same thing. Um, let me see if I can find that right quick. Philippians 4. See how this sounds compared to this uh, in Thessalonians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything. No worry. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. In other words, you pray to God, and even though he has not answered yet, you thank him for the answer he's going to give you. Easier said than done. Do not quench the spirit. This is do not put out the flame. In other words, God, the Holy Spirit's trying to work in you constantly. When you know what you're supposed to do and you deliberately choose not to do it, you're quenching the spirit. You're quenching the spirit. He wants to work in you. Let him work. Don't be an impediment to what God is trying to work in you. God is trying to work in you. You are a sinful person, so you rebel against it. This is saying, don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. That is the word of God. Some words of God 
we truly love. Some words of God we don't want to hear. They get too close to home. Too close to home. But test everything. You test everything by the Holy Spirit working through the Word. How do you test things? It's not what you think is right and wrong. It's what God's Word says. That's how you test things. Therefore, after you've tested them, hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. That's the work that the Holy Spirit is trying to do in you. Sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is his work. He's trying to sanctify you in your life so you lead a life that is pleasing to him. It's a constant struggle. It's a constant battle. But he's going to be faithful to you in it. He's going to be faithful. That's why it works. Not because you're doing it, because he's doing it. So sometimes... Believe it or not, you actually act like a Christian because God's working it in you. You can't take the credit. God's working it in you. Every once in a while, you do something that even, it even startles you that you did it. Did I do that? Now, what do you say next? Thank God or... Man, I'm pretty good. Which one is it? Needs to be thank God because he's the one that's worked it. All right, so that's a little uh, section about how the people of God are to live until Jesus comes again. That's basically why it's there. All right, questions about that one? Boy, y'all are quiet this morning. Too much partying last night? What? Oh, don't give me that. <laughs> Thank God. All right, let's move on to John 1. Again, in the third week of Advent, we talk about John the Baptist. So we quote from what's called the prologue of John. The prologue of John is John 1, 1 to 18. It begins, you've heard it, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But in the midst of the prologue, there are these verses about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. All right. We believe that uh, these verses are included in the prologue for a very specific reason. We believe that there was a group of individuals, disciples, that followed John the Baptist. That followed John the Baptist. That thought John was the one. These disciples are referenced when John was killed, and when he was killed, it specifically says, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. 
So he had disciples. These verses are thought to be in the prologue to end any doubt. John is not the great one here. Jesus is. What John was doing was bearing witness. Okay? Bearing witness. A person that bore witness committed themselves to what they were witnessing about. And he was witnessing about the light. The light is Jesus Christ. I am the light of the world. So John came. He was not the Christ, but he was witnessing about the Christ. And the purpose of his work was to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And the following verses talk about John saying, I'm not the one. Because it says that when the, uh, and this is the testimony of John, this was the witness of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? John was getting a lot of attention. A lot of people were going out to be baptized. And so this came back to the religious authorities. So they sent an envoy to find out, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. That's a very convoluted sentence. He confessed, didn't deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. I am not the light. See, that's what he's saying. I'm not the light. I bear witness to the light. I'm not the light. So they ask him, and many ask him, then what? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Now that one we need to talk about. He says, I am not. Let me read you what Jesus said about John. And this is in uh, chapter 11, verse 14. He's explaining what's going on around him and the disciples and he tells the disciples, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. John says, I'm not Elijah. Jesus says, oh, yes, he is. What's going on here? Elijah was taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire. Okay. The Jews always believed he would come back the same way. And then we come to the Malachi, a passage in Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. Okay. So there's this prophecy, they thought he would come back. When they ask John, are you Elijah? He's saying no, in the sense that he's not Elijah come from heaven. Jesus is saying, yes, he is, because he's like Elijah. That's what the passage was promising. 
he would be like Elijah. Let's think about Elijah. Lived in the wilderness for three years. Got water out of a brook and the ravens brought him meat. You know what kind of meat ravens bring? Roadkill. That's what Elijah ate. He lived in the wilderness. So when we come to John, how is John described? He wore skins, lived in the wilderness, and ate locusts and wild honey. He's like Elijah. He brings the word of God. He was in the spirit of Elijah, living in the wilderness, bringing the word of God. Okay? Bringing the word of God. The Jews were so serious about Elijah coming back at every Passover table. Whenever the Passover was celebrated by any family, there was one empty chair. It was for Elijah if he showed up. Always an empty chair. So they believed this. Jesus says, John was Elijah. He was in the spirit of Elijah bringing the word of God to the people. So he said, John says, I'm not Elijah in the sense you think. Okay? In the sense you think. Are you the prophet? This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said there, were, there would come a prophet. Uh, they were always looking for prophets. What did they do to prophets? Killed them? You know, they really, really, you know, are you a prophet? That way we can kill you. Um, but they never listened to the prophets. Okay. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah 40, verse 3, we read it today as the Old Testament lesson. When he was asked who he was, he quoted scripture. I'm the one that Isaiah talked about. A voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way. Prepare the way for the coming Messiah. That's what John was about. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? All right. This was a big deal for the Jews. If a Gentile wanted to become a Jew in that day, they baptized the Gentile. That was part of the right of becoming a Jew. John was preaching a very radical message. He was preaching to Jews, you got to be baptized. And they didn't like that. They didn't like to think for a moment that they would have to do something like they prescribed for the Gentiles. So what gives you the authority to tell Jews they have to be baptized? That's really what's behind this. If you're not Christ or Elijah or the prophet, why are you telling people they need to be baptized? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal 
I am not worthy to untie. A disciple, let's say a disciple of John or a disciple of Jesus, would never be asked to undo the sandal of the master. That was the beneath the dignity of a disciple. Only a slave would be asked to undo the sandal of a master. And what John is saying here is, I'm not even worthy enough as a slave to undo his sandal. That's how great he is. And that's how small I am. I'm not even worthy as slaves to undo his sandal. So he's putting it into a uh, explanation that they can understand just how great this one who is standing among them is, and they don't know it. And they don't know it. And they don't recognize him. John would not have recognized him unless God had told him. He just looked like a regular guy. He didn't glow in the dark. Okay? He just looked like a guy. John recognized him when God told him. Okay? These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So it gives us a little geographical note here. So this passage, as we move through Advent, this week the emphasis is on repentance. The next week, it's that John was not the one, but was pointing. We're getting closer. He's coming as we get into the third week of Advent. He is coming, and we can be assured of that. So it's all kind of got some movement. The coming of Christ uh, in, in the end and the word and sacrament, the repentance that now needs to be ours, and then we're pointing to Christ, and then uh, the reading, uh, the readings on the, uh, the fourth Sunday, which you'll look at next week, it, it's kind of he's here, all right? So there's a movement through Advent towards the coming of Christ, okay? All right. Um, Questions or comments about this one? Yeah, Scott. Yes, um, the question was, uh, the Jews had a lot of problems with baptism, and, and uh, when Jesus directed, uh, he said, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Whose authority did John have to baptize? Was it from men or from God? And the Jews weren't so far over their heads. I mean, they didn't know what. So they couldn't answer from men because the people believed he came from God. And they couldn't answer from God because then Jesus would say, then why didn't you get baptized? So they said, we don't know. Jesus said, I'm not answering your question either. Yeah, they had problems with John the Baptist. They had problems with baptism. Lois? That's an excellent question. The question is, did those who were baptized by John have to be rebaptized after Christ instituted baptism? The answer, as we study the Scriptures, is yes. In the book of Acts... As Paul is traveling, they find people. It's in Acts 19. 
that have only been baptized in the baptism of John, they rebaptize them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do not believe that these two baptisms were equivalent. Okay? Yes. Don. Yeah, um, the, the question is, it appears that uh, the people were ready to accept John as the Christ, and then they didn't accept Jesus. Go figure. And it says in the prologue of John that the world did not know him. So they were uh, uh, willing to, some of them were willing to accept John, but John was a sinful man. When Jesus actually came, they wouldn't accept him. I can't explain that. doesn't make any sense to us that they would accept John, but not Jesus. So it's tough. Yes. How did the Jews baptize? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I would have to research that to see what they commonly said. Uh, certainly, they didn't believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It wouldn't have been that language. Uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, but I'd have to see if we have any of the baptismal formulas that they used. Other questions? Yeah. I do not know that. Do the Jews baptize today in their synagogues? I do not know that. I've never heard of such a thing. So you can imagine, can you picture this? Now picture, picture a modern day synagogue. And uh, they still bring the scriptures out and read them publicly. And imagine a guy gets up to read that week and reads Isaiah 61 and sits down and says, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Ooh, it was just as radical then as it would be now. Just as radical then as it would be now. All right. We'll see you next week. And uh, God's blessings. Let's close the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.